0: the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran, and this is your place to explore the weird, the strange, the unexplained from cryptids and creatures, the paranormal, aliens and UFOs, forbidden knowledge, ancient mysteries, conspiracy theories, and more. All right, I'm back again. I hope everybody enjoyed my last episode on the Jersey Devil. That one was a lot of fun to research and do. I'd been wanting to do it forever, so finally check that one off the list. I was trying to finish up today's episode to release last week, but I got sidetracked with a different project for a minute on top of balancing snow days and sick days from school, no sleep, and everything in between. But we're still out here. Doing the thing. Just a couple quick announcements and shout-outs before I get started with the episode today. If you run over to my merch shop on Etsy, you'll find some new stuff there. I had several people asking me over the past year or so when I was going to be putting up listings for drink tumblers. So now I have these awesome 20-ounce stainless steel tumblers. If you enjoy drinking coffee while reading about cryptids and all the strange and unexplained things out there, or just throw in your favorite beverage, whatever. (laughs) And of course, uh, I had mentioned that I had been working on a Canadian cryptids, homeland cryptids map and designs for that in my last episode. But this past week, I decided to go back to the USA and make a new home state cryptid design for West Virginia, since that state has millions of cryptids. So this one is for the Snarlyow, which is West Virginia's phantom black dog slash hellhound type of cryptid. And you can check that out on my shop now. The link is in the show notes. Also, beyond supporting Strangeology with buying shirts and stickers and all that kind of stuff, If you want another way to support the show, you can sign up to become a member of my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash strangeology. It's super easy to find, and I've got a bunch of benefits split up between six tiers. You can get shout outs as a member, early access to episodes, access to members only episode extensions, the strangeology beyond portion of the show, merch discounts, exclusive merch, ad free episodes and more. And speaking of shout outs, I would like to welcome some new members to the Patreon today. We've got Carlos B, Robin Hood, and Son of the Wolf. So thank you all for signing up and supporting the show. If you want to be rad like them, definitely check it out. With the help and support of my patrons, I'm able to keep the lights on and continue to do more and more as the show grows. So thank you all so much for your support. All right, let's get into it. So today I've dived deep into the mystery of the Alaska Triangle. You're probably familiar with the Bermuda Triangle, but this section of America's Last Frontier has some truly bizarre and unexplained things that have happened there over the years. So buckle up because it's about to get weird. So there are a lot of different types of stories about the Alaska Triangle, which I'm going to split up into sections, kind of like how I've done with my New England oddities episodes. And who knows, this might be a jumping off point for revisiting some of these topics in the future and going back and doing even deeper dives and research onto them, because I've found here that it's just there's so many strange stories and weirdness that's found In the Alaska Triangle and kind of Alaska in general, really, it's just it's a magnet for high strangeness and all sorts of oddities. So there is this statistic that's often quoted, which states that over 16,000 people have disappeared in Alaska since 1988, which turns out to be double the rate of disappearances per capita than anywhere else in the world each year. It works out to about 1 in 200 people go missing in Alaska. And typically, there might be a couple thousand people that disappear each year. Now, according to an LA Times article that I found, over the last 50 to 60 years or so, there's actually been over 60,000 people that have gone missing in Alaska. These are alarming statistics for sure, but to give it a little context, Most of these cases do wind up being solved. A large number of cases, as it turns out, happen to involve child runaway cases or people were just eventually found after they wandered off and nothing bad happened to them. Now, this number is around 44,000 people, which is what leaves the 16,000 number of missing people, which has kind of been sensationalized into clickbait, unfortunately, it seems. Most of that number of missing people have never been found and are presumed dead from natural causes or suicide. And currently, the missing persons clearinghouse website for Alaska states that the number of active missing persons cases are over 1,300 people as of March 2023. Regardless of the statistic, a lot of people do go missing there. And Alaska is mostly untamed wilderness So I imagine if you want to disappear there, it would be pretty easy. I mean, the state is double the size of Texas and it's full of mountains and forests. And I would imagine that it would be really easy to disappear there. But there are a lot of cases that seem to boggle the mind as to how a person goes missing and is never found, depending on the circumstances. Now, the triangle encompasses a massive area of the eastern part of the state and even goes into the Yukon in Canada a little bit. To get an idea of where it is, the southernmost point is considered to be Juneau, Alaska's capital city. The midpoint is Anchorage, Alaska's largest city, and its northernmost point is the town of Utkievik, which is formerly known as Barrow. And that is actually also the northernmost town in the United States, and also where one of the creepiest vampire movies I've ever watched took place. Uh, I think it was 30 30 Days of Night or something like that. Totally uh, worth the watch if you like those types of movies. Altogether, though, this area encompasses 32,000 square miles, and that's a lot of space for something weird to happen. So for years, this part of Alaska has been plagued with unexplained disappearances of people and aircraft, boats. There's been paranormal phenomena, stories of interdimensional beings like Fay Folk, cryptid sightings, along with tons of UFO activity, making it one of the biggest UFO hotspots in the world, actually. And there's even theories of there being portals and energy vortices. So let's just get into some of these stories. So like I just said, many consider this area to be one of the vile vortices of the world, which there are a few. These are places like the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean, the Devil's Triangle in the Sea of Japan, but it's considered to be far more dangerous. And of course, there's other spots around the world, too, like the Bridgewater Triangle, I covered early on the show, as well as the Bennington Triangle, Sedona, Arizona, even like Skinwalker Ranch, I think, is considered to have some kind of energy vortex going on out there. And these are all window areas where paranormal activity and high strangeness seems to occur frequently. And with the Alaska Triangle, it seems like the energy grid of the Earth kind of lines up really well with where all these events and incidents take place. It's pretty interesting. Now, it's believed that Alaska harbors a lot of these mystery vortices and areas of anomalous energy that can have strange effects on people and objects and the natural environment, which could potentially account for what people are seeing and experiencing there. And some of it could even date back for thousands of years, finding Origins of folklore and stories dating way, way back. Now, during my research, I've found that there's an area around Mount Hayes, which is a remote peak kind of in between Anchorage and Fairbanks, that's considered to be an area of high strangeness. And this is within the Alaska mountain range. There's, I think, about like six or seven different mountain ranges, and it kind of cuts right through the middle of the state. Some researchers believe that this mountain might actually be home to one of these energy vortices, and it can cause strange weather patterns, electromagnetic disturbances. There's stories of it affecting satellites that fly over it and other unexplained phenomena like portals opening up, of course. And some have suggested that there could even be an alien base hidden within the mountain as well, which is interesting. And there's other areas of Alaska, too, that have a lot of anomalies, like the Brooks Range and the Kenai Peninsula, which I'll go into more detail about shortly. Some of the paranormal phenomena in the Triangle has also been attributed to magnetic disturbances and anomalies. Some researchers believe that these anomalies may be one of the things out there that's responsible for a number of disappearances of people and aircraft in the region, which can affect navigation systems on planes, causing them to get lost and even crash. While these vortex things can't really be proven yet, magnetic anomalies are real and have been mapped out with satellites. These are areas where the Earth's magnetic field is unusually strong or weak, And that can be caused by a variety of things, including variations in the composition of the Earth's crust or the presence of magnetic materials in the soil and the bedrock. And a quick search online will bring up several data maps of the whole planet where you can see what this is actually looking like. It's kind of interesting. And in the case of the Alaska Triangle, Researchers have identified several areas where magnetic anomalies appear to be particularly strong, such as the Wrangell-St. Elias range, the Alaska range, the Talkeetna range, the Chugash mountains. Uh, These areas have particularly intense anomalies, and they're also believed to be areas where a lot of this strange phenomena occurs. You'll find... Compasses will spin uncontrollably. There'll be disruptions in radio and GPS signals, even electrical malfunctions in aircraft and other vehicles and equipment. And while the exact cause of these magnetic anomalies is not fully understood, some researchers do believe that they may be related to this geological composition and activity in the region. The Alaska Triangle is located on one of the Parts of the Pacific Rim, which is known for its high levels of seismic and volcanic activity, which could potentially be contributing to the magnetic disturbances in the area. Overall, while the existence and effects of these magnetic anomalies in the Alaska Triangle are still up for debate and speculation, it continues to contribute and be an important part of this region's lore and mystery. Now, if you listened to my episode about the ghost lights and more specifically the section on the brown mountain lights of North Carolina, you might be able to guess what I'm about to say next. As it turns out, Alaska's mountain ranges, such as the Wrangell St. Elias and the Alaska, the Yukon Tanana, Uplands, the Chugash Mountains, are all known to hold quartz crystals, such as amethyst, which has piezoelectric properties. Piezoelectricity is this electric charge which accumulates in crystalline structures, in certain solids like crystal, ceramics, and biological matter, in a response to a mechanical stress. It's basically a result from pressure or heat which turns this mechanical energy into electric energy. This phenomena has been theorized to be behind the famous brown mountain lights in North Carolina and could create something that's like similar to ball lightning that comes out of the ground and just floats around for a while. And no one is 100 percent sure exactly why this happens, but it's possible that these kind of mechanical stresses on these crystalline deposits in Alaska's mountains could be an answer to some of the phenomena that people have been observing in this area. It could account for some UFO sightings, even ghost sightings, or different anomalies that pilots encounter while flying over the area. And since 2015, there's been over a quarter million earthquakes there, which in theory could cause enough stress and mechanical energy on the geology to transfer and elicit some sort of response or some of this phenomena to occur now another thing that could contribute to the weirdness and unexplained mysteries here are ley lines some of which are known to pass through the alaska triangle and the intersection of these lines are theorized to demarcate earth energies and energy vortices And are locations where high strangeness is said to occur, such as people disappearing, the opening of portals, places that are UFO hotspots, and for other paranormal and supernatural phenomena. Typically, ley lines are drawn between historical structures or sacred sites or even prominent landmarks, which were thought to be recognized by ancient cultures, which is why many ancient megalithic sites have been constructed along them. So the theory says, and many seem to be in alignment with one another. Now, Denali National Park, which is home to Mount McKinley, is said to be the location of the crossing of some major ley lines in the area. And one of these major ley lines goes from Peru all the way to Alaska. And it's actually considered one of the longest single ley lines on the planet, which is super interesting. Now, ley lines are probably going to be a subject that I'm going to have to do for like a whole episode by itself because there's a lot more information out there that I can fit into this episode. <laughs> so, I think next we're going to we're going to transition to stories about cryptids and folkloric creatures within Alaska and its infamous triangle. So, there's a bunch of cryptids and creatures here and uh, a few of them most of them really would absolutely mess you up if you you ran into them and that's not to mention too that Alaska also has some highly dangerous animals that are officially recognized like grizzly bears so this first story here that i want to go over is super interesting and this is about the entity or creature known as the kushtaka which translates to land otter people, or some people refer to it as the otter man. This story comes from the folklore of the Tlingit and Haida tribes of southeast Alaska, where the Kushtaka is a prominent figure. According to their stories, it's set to be a shapeshifting creature that can take the form of an otter or a human, more specifically the form of a loved one of the person encountering this creature, but you'll find that it's most often depicted in art as an anthropomorphized otter, which I suppose looks far more interesting than just drawing a person. (laughs) Some people believe that the Kushtaka is a spirit or guardian of the forests and waters of Alaska, while others believe that it's a malevolent creature that preys on humans. It seems to have a kind of light side and a dark side. According to legend, the Kushtaka is said to be capable of great kindness or great cruelty. On one hand, it's said to rescue sailors or travelers that are in trouble. On the other hand, it's also known to have evil intent towards these people. I guess it's however it's feeling that day. Maybe it got up on the wrong side of the bed or something like that. The folklore states that the Kushtaka will lure people in by mimicking the cries of a baby or the screams of a drowning person. Usually, it draws concerned people towards the water who are looking to help. And from there, it might turn an unsuspecting human into another kushtaka, or it may play the villain and attack a person by dragging them into the water and drowning them, or just gutting them on the spot. It's kind of brutal. Now, the Tlingit people say that dogs are able to ward off these creatures and that even if they're in human form, a dog can sniff them out. It's said that the Kushtaka's other weaknesses are copper, perhaps because of supposed metaphysical and electrical properties that it has, along with fire, which of course can burn them and nobody wants to get burned. And then they can also be deterred by urine and according to charlie sheen stick with me here the Kushtika is also afraid of him according to a 2013 quote where he went to alaska with a crew of people looking for it and came up empty-handed and he was quoted as saying it obviously knew our group was far too skilled to be snowed in this fashion so it stayed hidden away like a sissy i never thought i'd be Quoting Charlie Sheen on this podcast, but here we are. (laughs) So, in the end, the Kushtika is a fascinating story, a fascinating legend of this creature that has captured the imagination of many people over generations. At its core, the Kushtika is a shape shifting trickster spirit that embodies the duality of human nature, both light and dark playful, and dangerous, and it remains an important piece of folklore for Native Alaskans. Now, the next one I'm going to go over here is the Kuala Palik. This is an aquatic cryptid-type creature from Inuit mythology that's very similar to a mermaid, but it's downright ugly. It's said to live in the waters around the Arctic, from Alaska to as well as into Canada and as far as Greenland. It's described as a humanoid creature with green, scaly skin and long hair, webbed hands and feet, and long claws, and it wears a long coat made of animal skins. Some have described them as having fins that protrude from their heads, torsos, and backs. And perhaps more disturbing is that they carry with them something called an amotique, which was an article of clothing, kind of like a sling that Inuit women would wear to strap their babies to their backs. And according to the legend, the Kualupalik preys primarily on children and uses these amotiques to put them in while they snatch up the kids. They seem to target these kids who wander too far off from their parents or get too close to water. And those long fingernail claws that it has that I mentioned earlier aids the koala into easily grasping children, almost locking them up in a cage so they can throw them on their backs and swim away. So according to the legend, how do you know if one of these things is nearby trying to ruin your day? Well, the primary way to know if one of these things is near is if you hear humming that seems to be originating from the water. The humming is meant to entice children to come near to the shore so that this creature can make its move. But perhaps more disturbing is that they're also said to be able to draw people to them, even if you're not near the water's edge. If an Inuit family was on the ice, for example, but far away from open water, a Quailu could swim to their location under the ice and start knocking on it in the hopes of drawing any child away from their family to an opening or a thin part of the ice where they can break through and grab them. That's kind of terrifying. I think that's a little bit more terrifying than a kid walking to the shore or the edge of the ice, something busting through while you think you're safely far enough in towards land. Like that's pretty scary. I think now what happens to these children? Some legends say that they're taken to a cave and put under a kind of sleeping spell, But the more unnerving part of the story that I found is that the children often become a meal for these creatures and their youthful energy is consumed and it grants the a kind of immortality. However, they have to keep consuming in order to remain that way. It's thought that stories of the Pelik were often used as a cautionary tale to teach children the importance of listening to their parents and staying away from dangerous areas like open water or thin ice where they could easily drown. And what better way to teach that lesson than with stories of an absolutely terrifying sea monster that can come and snatch you up almost any time if you're not careful? Seems like a pretty effective way to (laughs) teach these children a lesson. Okay, so the next legend that I want to talk about here, and it's a legend that can be found all over North America, and even similar legends can be found all over the world. This is the story of Thunderbirds in Alaska. Legends of these creatures go back millennia and can be found originating in the folklore of many Native American and First Nations peoples, Alaska is one of the places that many people have said to have witnessed these massive and legendary birds. Thunderbirds are sometimes described as being condor like or even eagle like with black feathers, except for a ring of white around their necks. The biggest distinction between a thunderbird and birds we recognize as real is that they are huge with unbelievably enormous wingspans and the strength, at least, to pick up a human child or small adult and carry them off. There was that infamous case in Illinois back in the 70s where this gigantic bird actually picked a kid up off the ground and almost flew off with him. Now, written reports of these creatures can be found dating back to the late 1800s and early 1900s and are continuing into modern times. Around the turn of the millennium. In 2002, Alaskans began reporting seeing this giant bird in the skies that looked like the size of a small plane, and some described it as looking like it was straight out of Jurassic Park, which is kind of crazy. And as recently as 2018, I found a story about several eyewitness reports who claimed to see an extremely large black bird near Juneau and the Mendenhall Valley, And this creature's wingspan was described as being around 20 feet, almost twice as wide as the main road in the area. And it had a body that was six to eight feet in length. And feathers could be made out by some witnesses. So it was a real animal, it seems. Uh, But many people had trouble making out the details of its face, like what its beak looked like, what its eyes looked like, that kind of thing. Some also described it as being the size of a small airplane like a Cessna or at least five times the size of a regular bird like an eagle. Now, witnesses maintained that it wasn't a known bird that they knew of that lived up in Alaska and that they'd never seen anything like it before. So definitely keep your eyes on the skies if you're from Alaska. There could be some pretty massive birds out there. One of the bigger and more frightening cryptid tales in Alaska is that of the Alaskan killer Bigfoot. It's been a while since I've talked about Bigfoot on this show. I think, gosh, maybe even since early on when I talked about the Muggeon Monster of Arizona. So the forests and mountains around the abandoned town of Port Lock, Alaska, which lays on the southern tip of the Kenai Peninsula, is Said to be inhabited by a creature that's been called the hairy man, which, for all intents and purposes, it sounds like it's a kind of Bigfoot like creature. So, a little history here Portlock was once a well established fishing community, which started in the late 1700s. Eventually, a cannery business opened. And there was even a mining company that started after chromium deposits were found in the mountains in that area. Business was booming, so it's not like this town was some small village. And then in the early 1900s, people started leaving the town. In 1905, it was reported that something out in the wilderness was spooking the local cannery workers, and they wound up leaving for an entire fishing season. Next year they returned, however, they still reported something strange happening around the town. And after decades of weird happenings and things like unexplained murders, the entire town had been abandoned by 1950. According to local legend, there may have been this unknown creature stalking the outskirts of Portlock. Many people believe that it was a particularly aggressive and dangerous type of Bigfoot, Witnesses who claimed to see it described this creature as standing between 8 and 10 feet tall, and that it had long, shaggy hair, along with powerful arms and legs. Some accounts suggested that the creature had a particularly foul odor, which is not uncommon with Bigfoot sightings, especially with accounts and stories of Florida's skunk ape, for example, and it was also said to be prone to making loud howling vocalizations, which to me sounds like perhaps it could be a primate. The native Alutique people of the area knew of this creature and had a name for it, which was Nantinok. The disappearances started in Portlock when miners and hunters would go off into the wilderness and... They started not coming back and people couldn't figure out why. One story involved a local man who was chopping wood one day and he wasn't heard from for a while. And so his neighbors went out to investigate what was going on. Where was their neighbor? And they wound up finding his dead body. And as it turns out, when they checked out his body, they saw that he had been hit in the back of the head. Upon further examination of the body, it was determined that he was killed by this single blow to the back of his head, which seemed to be done with a force that was greater than something that a human being could do. Now, I suppose you could say there could have been a weapon involved, maybe a pipe or something like that that was discarded and never found. Serial killers and just random killers aren't exactly unusual to be around Alaska, So that is a possibility, but there is also the idea that perhaps a angry Bigfoot could have come in and just taken this guy out. Other reports from moose hunters told a story about finding these 18 inch long humanoid footprints while tracking a moose. It seems that the creature that these large tracks belong to was also tracking this moose. And eventually it led the hunters to a site of this violent and bloody struggle that happened between the moose that they were tracking and whatever this other large creature was. And despite the gruesome scene, they apparently found no body of the moose. It seems like it was dragged off or carried off by something much larger than it was, which is pretty wild. Maybe a bear could do it, but... I don't know, 18-inch footprints that look humanoid doesn't sound like a bear to me. Now, in the 1930s, another town resident named Tom Larson was also chopping wood one day near the water's edge, and he saw across the way something that was large and hairy standing on the beach. He went to go grab his rifle and then ran back to the beach where he was chopping wood, And this creature was apparently still there just staring at him for a time until it decided to walk off and disappear back into the bush. So that's a pretty startling story. A little uneventful, but still, it seems that like people were seeing something around Port Locke. And I've got to wonder if it was real, if these stories are true, if it's still out there. So over the years... It turns out that around three dozen people had been found murdered or had gone missing under mysterious circumstances in Port Locke. The final straw, it seems, was when in 1949, a local trapper went out into the wilderness to check his traps. And as he arrived to one of them, he was bending over and something came up from behind him suddenly and began to beat on him wildly. He didn't get a great look at what this thing was that was pummeling him, but whatever it was definitely was not a bear. It didn't bite, didn't have any claws that it was trying to tear him to shreds with. The man's sled dogs managed to actually chase off the creature somehow, and he was able to muster enough strength to get back on his sled to travel back to town. However, the man had severe internal injuries and succumbed to them shortly after arriving to the local doctor, and after this point, it seems that the townspeople had enough and kind of left Portlock en masse, completely abandoning the town. Many of them were said to have relocated to Port Graham or Nanwalek on the other side of the peninsula, which is not all that far as the crow flies—maybe ten to fifteen miles. But despite numerous reports and sightings. Ultimately, there's been no definitive proof that this Alaskan killer Bigfoot is real. And skeptics argue that the creature was likely a misidentification of known animals or simply a product of local folklore and mythmaking. Others have said that disappearances or strange murders may have just been people getting lost, getting attacked by animals, or perhaps there was a serial killer among them. And some say that the local population just left the area over time in search of greener pastures and leaving the place a ghost town. Perhaps the fishing business dried up and and people needed to find a way to make their living. So in the end, this is probably one of the bigger cryptid stories in Alaska, and it definitely remains a popular topic of discussion and speculation among the Bigfoot community. So definitely a really interesting story. And it seems like there's probably a lot more to it, so might be a topic to revisit at some point in the future. Now, if you are into missing 411 or just general missing people reports, sometimes I'll touch on some cases on the show here and there. In Alaska, the triangle is no stranger to cases of missing people. I'm going to go over a couple of the bigger cases that still remain unexplained to this day. So, this first one here that I've got involved some relatively high profile members of the United States Congress that went missing over the triangle. So, on October 16th, 1972, the majority leader of the House at the time, a man named Hale Boggs of Louisiana, who also interestingly served on the Warren Commission for the assassination of JFK. That whole investigation, along with Alaska Representative Nick Begich, along with pilot Don Johns, whose small airline company he called Pan Alaska Airways, and Begich's aide, Russell Brown, disappeared without a trace while they flew through the triangle. They were en route to Juneau from Anchorage in John's twin engine 1959 Cessna 310C. Heading to a fundraiser for Bigich's upcoming re-election in November of that year. Everything was going fine, and the last contact that the plane had made with air traffic control was 10 minutes into the flight. It should have only been a three and a half hour flight, but the plane never arrived in Juneau. Within 30 minutes, the authorities began calling around to see if the plane maybe landed at another airport and shortly after, a search effort was mounted when they realized that something was wrong. Now, it's strange that the plane would have gone missing as apparently Don Johns was an expert pilot, and while the sky was overcast that day, weather may have had moderate conditions with possible icing, but it wasn't anything that Don Johns thought he couldn't handle. According to his flight plan, he basically just had to follow the coast of Alaska through Portage Pass and down to Juneau, and that was it. The plane had just done its regular 100 hour maintenance check, and Don Johns had flown from Fairbanks to Anchorage the day before with no problems. So, what had happened? So, the search effort lasted for over five weeks and brought in the immediate use of an Air Force C 130 that was already airborne at the time, and they found nothing. They even employed the use of an SR-71, which was was pretty interesting. Why use a spy plane for that, I wonder? Uh, Kind of interesting. And in the end, hundreds of planes were called in to aid in the search effort. Dozens of ships were called in to search the waters up and down the coast, and hundreds of people were called in to search on the ground, and they found absolutely nothing. The search was called off on November 24th, and everyone on board that flight was declared dead by December 29th. Over the years, numerous theories and speculation has been put forward to explain the disappearance of this plane. Some have suggested that it was brought down by bad weather or icing, or perhaps nasty turbulence created by the weather conditions and the geography of the area, as there are many mountains and inlets which could have potentially worsened conditions. Others have pointed to the possibility of pilot error or mechanical failure. However, many have also suggested more sinister explanations such as foul play, sabotage, or even a cover-up involving the U.S. government and the FBI. One of the big theories is that a bomb had been planted on it and blew the plane up. As a means to get rid of them for some reason. It's unclear exactly what that reason could be. As it turns out, before leaving, a flight service specialist who recorded John's flight plan gave him the weather, which wasn't going to be an issue apparently, and also confirmed that John's had emergency survival gear on board as well as an emergency locator transmitter. However, during the investigation of the incident, the National Transportation Security Board, or NTSB for short, determined that the transmitter wasn't actually ever on board Johns' plane. And it was actually back at his flight company headquarters back in Fairbanks. In addition to that, there was no survival gear present either. So perhaps he just forgot it, and they ran into some really bad weather and crashed, but despite this extensive search effort involving all these military aircraft and ships and ground crews, no wreckage or bodies were ever found. However, it is said that it can be very difficult to find down planes because of the weather in Alaska. Something could go down in a lake and then it could snow really fast and ice over and you just never find any survivors or or evidence of wreckage things could also go down and crash into craggy mountain peaks that are unreachable so it's a little you know what what really happened here it's a huge mystery and it is somewhat unsurprising as planes go missing all the time in alaska from what i've read And it's such a massive place with all these mountains and forests and lakes and harsh and unforgiving wilderness. It's got to be not that hard to go missing and never be found, even if you're in a plane and you'd think there'd be like a huge crash area where you'd see something. But it seems that Alaska's got some mysteries that it wants to hold on to. In the end, this remains one of the most high profile and enduring mysteries in Alaskan aviation history. And the disappearance of Boggs and Bigich had a significant impact on American politics at the time, as both of the men were pretty prominent members of the Democratic Party, and they had played important roles in passing landmark civil rights legislation in the 60s. And as I mentioned, uh, Boggs was on the Warren Commission, which investigated the assassination of JFK. And... To this day, despite occasional efforts to locate the wreckage and uncover new evidence, no definitive explanation for what happened to them has ever been found. So it's definitely a really interesting case. The other high-profile plane disappearance in Alaska that I want to go over briefly is the case of the missing Air Force C-54 Spymaster plane. Now, this plane disappeared over Alaska on January 26, 1950, while traveling from Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage to the Great Falls Air Force Base in Montana. The plane was carrying a total of 44 people on board, eight crew members, 36 military personnel, and two civilians, a mother and her infant son. Two hours into its eight-hour flight, the plane had crossed into Canadian airspace over the Yukon and made its last radio contact over Snag which is a small town right on the border of Alaska. And when the plane didn't arrive in Montana, the military immediately launched a joint search effort with Canada as it was assumed that the plane must have gone down. This extensive search effort lasted for over three weeks and involved multiple aircraft, ground crews, and it searched an area larger than the state of Texas. Eighty-five Canadian and American planes were used, along with 7,000 personnel in this effort, and it searched over 350,000 square miles. Now, that's a a very large area to search. Despite this massive search effort, no trace of the C-54 or its crew was ever found, and it completely baffled the searchers. However, the disappearance of the C-54 wasn't the only strange thing that happened during this whole ordeal. It turns out that three other planes that were part of the search effort crashed during the operation. And perhaps most strange were reports that on February 2nd of 1950, only a week after this plane had vanished, faint and garbled radio distress calls apparently began to be received by air traffic controllers and radio operators on the rescue team. Some of these were near the town of Asahik, which was supposed to be the plane's second radio check-in during its flight. That obviously never happened. And despite them looking through this area, nothing was ever found out there. So perhaps survivors of the crash were desperately trying to get their radio to work before battery power ran out and they froze to death. Or perhaps something stranger happened. The plane went down in the Alaska Triangle, which some say harbors portals to other worlds, of course. Could it be possible that the C-54 potentially passed through a portal or a wormhole to another dimension, and these transmissions were a kind of last-ditch effort to try to get a signal through to be found before this portal closed up? Perhaps that's a little out there, but I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility here. Over the years, there have been various theories and speculations about what happened to the plane, including that it may have crashed in a remote area of Alaska, just outside of the search area, or that it was shot down by covert Soviet forces, or was the victim of sabotage or mechanical failure. No concrete evidence has ever been found to support any of these theories, and the fate of this plane and its crew remains unknown to this day. And... Like the Hale Boggs case before, it's one of the biggest mysteries in Alaskan aviation history. However, uh, in 2022, just last year, a documentary called Spymaster Down was released on the CBC all about this incident, and a group who is based out of Whitehorse in the Yukon have called for a renewed search of this plane using drones to search areas that were impossible to get to back in the 1950s. So perhaps someday there could be a chance that something might be found if it didn't cross into another dimension or something like that. All right. So I mentioned before that Alaska is one of the biggest UFO hotspots in the world. And according to a 2019 article by an ABC affiliate, WTXL, in Tallahassee, Florida. It's in the top five, with the other four being Washington State, Montana, Vermont, and Maine. And according to the article, since the 1950s, there's been over 6,500 reported sightings in Alaska. I'm sure many of them are explainable, but perhaps one of the most notable and truly bizarre cases of a UFO encounter and that should be plural, UFOs, over the Alaska Triangle, is Japan Airlines flight 1628. So this incident happened on Monday, November 17th, 1986, and it involved this Japanese commercial airliner flown by Captain Kenju Teruchi, along with his co-pilot, Takanori Tamafuji, and flight engineer Yoshio Sakuda. The plane was a Boeing 747 cargo aircraft that was flying en route to Anchorage from Paris. Their flight path took them west, heading from France, over Iceland, and through the Arctic Circle. They entered Alaskan airspace in the northeastern corner of Alaska around 5.11 p.m. And actually looked this up on the date in 1986 that this happened around the latitude that they were at, sunset was around 2.05 p.m., so it was well into the nighttime up there. And I want to note here that Teruuchi was an ex-fighter pilot with over 10,000 hours of flight experience, so this guy knew his stuff. Shortly after they crossed into Alaskan airspace, the pilots witnessed two unidentified objects abruptly rise from below their altitude, which then seemed to kind of pace and escort their plane for a bit. They couldn't make out the bodies of the craft, what they looked like exactly, but they reported seeing what looked like glowing nozzles or thrusters. So at first glance, they probably thought that these were American planes. And as these objects got closer to the plane, the lights from these nozzles would illuminate the cockpit and Tarauchi said that he could feel heat on his face from these objects as they got close. Now they radioed to air traffic control and Anchorage to confirm what these objects were, but it turns out that the only other thing that was in the sky near their position was this military plane, which was actually quite a distance away from their position. And then there was nothing else showing up on radar. At one point, these two UFOs, I mean, at this point, that's what they are, right? After these things had been following the 747 for about seven to eight minutes, they suddenly jumped into position about 500 to 1,000 feet in front of the plane and were positioned with one on top of the other. It was noted that when this happened, the lights on these craft became super bright and it seemed like maybe they were observing some kind of reversed thrust from this craft, maybe to slow them back down and match the speed of the plane. Terauchi described it like these craft were disregarding inertia and was quoted as saying, The thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up, then stopped, then flew at our speed in our direction, so that to us it appeared to be standing still. The next instant it changed course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity. He could also feel the warmth coming off of these things still, anytime they seemed to fire off this reverse thrust. They radioed to Anchorage again around 519, and they still had no other contacts on radar near them. Now, these UFOs held their kind of pancake stack formation for around 10 minutes, and Teruchi said that periodically they would get brighter and dimmer, and that they seemed to kind of undulate like a boat sitting on water as they flew in front of the plane. And as they got a better look at these things, it seemed like they appeared to be square, at least from the angle that they were viewing, although Terauchi suspected that they were probably more like cylinders, but he just couldn't tell. Also, they had these arrays on their edges that seemed to be what the glowing thrusters or nozzles were that caused this light show and the middle of the objects had this dark strip in them like there was no source of light a few minutes later these two objects just took off abruptly headed in an easterly direction and just as soon as those objects disappeared Terrauchi reported seeing this pale band of light that matched their altitude speed and direction kind of headed towards them Anchorage, again, reported nothing on their radar. However, Elmendorf's NORAD Regional Operations Control Center apparently reported a surge primary return. I'm not 100% clear on what that means. I tried looking it up, but I couldn't really find too much. So if anybody out there knows what that terminology is referring to exactly, get in touch. But perhaps... It was some kind of spike in a signal that they could read, but nothing was really showing up on radar still. At this point, the plane was approaching Fairbanks airspace, and the light from the city began to light up this new object. Tarauchi reported that what was revealed was a massive spaceship—he called it a mothership—that appeared to be double the size of an aircraft carrier— And based on artist interpretations, almost looked like a large sphere with this ring that jutted out around the middle of the object, kind of making it look like a planet like Saturn or an 80s pogo ball. Remember those? (laughs) So this time, Terrauchi radioed Fairbanks, but still nothing was showing up on radar. Anchorage then offered to have jets scrambled to intercept these objects, but Terrauchi declined that offer. Shortly after this, as they began to approach Denali, they lost sight of the mothership and eventually made it safely to Anchorage by 6.20pm. After this incident, Terauchi stated that these objects were UFOs in the official FAA report about this and even gave an interview to a pair of journalists from a news outlet in Japan, which resulted in Japan Airlines revoking his piloting privileges and moving him to a desk job for several years. At the time, I think with pretty much all airlines, if pilots talked about UFOs, they would be grounded, likely due to concerns over being of sound mind to fly a plane, which is important, and that's a fair thing, I guess, but with experienced pilots who are otherwise rational, professional, and experienced individuals with thousands of hours flying planes, there's got to be some credence to some of these stories out there, right? It's interesting now to see how things have changed since the Tic Tac story dropped back in 2017, and eventually, Terauchi was reinstated and flew for a few more years until he retired. Now, of course, there's going to be skeptics and debunkers trying to rationally explain this case. One of the theories was that it may have been a test flight for a new stealth bomber, that they encountered or that Terrauchi was simply embellishing the story and that any lights seen by him or his crew were not unusual as his crew members didn't report any of the wild happenings that he did and also that he referred to the ships as UFOs and motherships and spaceships and that he believed that they were probably alien So they think that because of that, that he was making it all up. I think that's kind of a cop-out answer, but it's like, yes, there were lights, objects in the sky following this plane for over an hour. One of the objects was an order of several magnitudes larger than the plane. How the hell was it flying? And more importantly, why were none of these objects picked up on radar at two different air traffic controls? (laughs) A lot of questions here, but this case remains one of the most famous UFO sightings in history, and it's definitely one of the cooler ones out there, in my opinion. And to end this segment, apparently when asked why the UFOs were chasing the plane, Teruchi joked that since they were carrying a specialty wine from Paris as cargo, the aliens must have wanted to have some. <laughs> Okay, so speaking of alien and otherworldly encounters with non-human intelligences, throughout the world, many cultures have legends of little people, or the fae. Celtic folklore talks about entities like leprechauns, elves, the Dulahan, and even banshees. And then you've got Icelandic folklore talking about the hidden people, duendes in Spanish, Filipino, and Latin American folklore. I could go on. Most are described as living in liminal spaces, caves, forests, or even other dimensions. And overall, it seems there's a common thread with different stories and legends that say that these beings enjoy messing with humans. And of course, Alaska is a place that has very similar legends that come from the Inuit and Yupik peoples. These strange creatures are often collectively referred to as Inukin among Other variants that I don't dare try and pronounce. Now, the Inukin, it seems, hail from more of the Bering Strait and Western regions of Alaska, which isn't in the triangle technically. However, I wouldn't be surprised if I ever get a chance to do a deeper dive into this, that there could be stories within the specific area of the triangle. So, the Inukin are described as being anywhere from one to three feet tall. Dressed in animal skins and they have pointed heads, pointed ears, not too dissimilar from your standard depiction of an elf or even something like a Vulcan ear from Star Trek, I suppose. And they're known to have superhuman abilities like great speed and strength and have supernatural abilities like shape-shifting invisibility and have the ability to manipulate minds. These beings typically live underground or in the mountains away from humans. However, at night, it seems, is the time that they venture out. Those who have encountered these things and lived to tell the tale talk about them being mischievous, ill-tempered, and they delight in messing with or hurting people. They'll try to get travelers lost, throw rocks at them, and may even steal a hunter's kill before they can reach it. Some say that they even sneak into towns at night to steal food and materials from people's homes. Another more sinister part of the legend speaks of these creatures kidnapping women and children, dragging them away into the wilderness never to be seen again. There are some instances where these creatures may take pity on lost travelers and help guide them to safety. There's a lot of similarities here with the legend of Pukwudgies in New England and the Great Lakes region, which is interesting. And also similarities with a lot of the other stories of the Fae around the world. And it seems like there is some kind of connection here. Maybe they're all from the same realm and can just kind of pass over into our realm at will. According to some stories out there, there are bush pilots that have seen caribou appearing to be walking on their sides with their legs kind of sticking out parallel to the ground. And when they fly down for a closer look, it appears that they can see the caribou is actually being carried by the Inukin, which is really interesting. So there's this 1993 Anchorage Daily News article that ran a story ...about a woman named Flora Penn... ...who was backpacking with a friend... ...up the Noatak River for a few days. Now, this is... ...right in the Bering Strait... ...region of Alaska... ...western coast. The closest settlements there... ...are Noatak... ...which is right on the river... Kotzebue to the south... ...and Kivalina to the west. And there's a mining operation to the north... ...about 10 to 12 miles away... ...from the river and well into the mountains. So they were basically in the middle of nowhere, and the chances of them running into anyone, I imagine, were slim to none. So one of the days on their trip, Flora and her friend were picking berries, and she says that she spotted what she described as a little man sitting on a piece of driftwood across the bank of the river, smoking a pipe. And she said that this man had a pointed head, a big nose, and pointed ears. Now, this little man didn't notice them, and they were able to sit there and observe him quietly for an hour while he just chilled. He was just hanging out, smoking his pipe, looking around at the scenery, taking it all in. And just as soon as they saw this thing, (laughs) he jumped up and ran into the woods in the direction of the nearby mountain range. So that's just a really interesting story, to be out in the middle of nowhere and to see something that would be basically described as an elf, like some kind of fairy folk entity that's just hanging out in the woods, not suspecting that any human is going to come by. Definitely weird. One of the more stranger stories, though, that I came across was from another article in the Anchorage Daily News from 2008, which described a hunter from Marshall, Alaska, who was riding around in his snowmobile out in this remote area one day. And he came upon this marsh and found a young boy sitting all alone in the middle of this marsh. He stopped his snow machine and he approached the boy because... He was so far out. He's like miles away from the nearest town. And clearly this kid was lost and in trouble. And as he got close, it seemed like this boy was in a kind of daze or a trance. And stranger still was that there was snow on the ground, but there were no tracks in the snow around this boy. So how did he get there? And when he came to, he was visibly scared and upset and had no concept of time, but he wasn't tired, hungry, or thirsty. So it's like he seemed like he wasn't away from his home for too long, but there was no way he would have been able to get there because there were no footprints in the snow. It's like he was dropped out of the sky, or he just blinked into existence. So the hunter got the boy to tell him where his home was, and after he calmed down a bit, the boy started to claim that he had been taken by the little people, Near Pilcher Mountain, and this place is apparently a hot spot for Inukin encounters. The boy said that he had been held captive near the mountain, and while he was being held captive by these creatures, he said that there was a young girl there with him who explained that she had been taken 40 years ago. Eventually, the Inukin decided to let him go, and then dropped him in the marsh, and that's when the hunter found him. So it seems that perhaps the Inukin could be interdimensional, right? And perhaps they go through these portals to their home dimension or realm where time runs differently than it does here. So if these creatures exist, it could account for some unexplained disappearances in high strangeness in Alaska for sure. Now, this last section here, because we're going on for a while, but because I took an extra week to get this episode done, I wanted to make sure this was a a jam-packed episode. So this last little bit here, we're going to get into paranormal stuff. So beyond all this other weird stuff happening within Alaska and its triangle, it should come as no surprise that there's also ghost stories, right? Some of which originate from people who race in the Iditarod, you know, the famous dog sled race that happens in Alaska that was inspired by the sled dogs, Balto and Togo, who managed to get medicine to sick children in Nome back in like the mid 1920s. I think there was a movie in the 90s that was made about it called Iron Will. And then, of course, there's the animated movie Balto as well. But people get mad because Togo was the one that was actually the the hero dog. (laughs) Anyway, apparently there have been stories of apparitions seen along the Iditarod Trail since the race started in 1973. This trail runs from Nome to Anchorage, which is just under a thousand miles. And it takes one to two weeks to complete or more, depending on weather conditions. And it's done using dog sled race teams. Real old school and real brutal. The racers will run into bad weather conditions like blizzards, sub-zero temperatures, and gale-force winds that can make it feel like it's 100 degrees below zero on the Fahrenheit scale. Of course, while the mapped-out trail is mostly outside of the triangle, it does periodically cross into it and goes through some pretty extreme terrain, and even through some old ghost towns. Over recent years, racers have reported seeing ghosts of old racing teams out there, looking out of place and what could be described as being old-timey. They would be described as wearing wolf skins and being wrapped in blankets, which doesn't match up with modern outdoor gear and equipment. So that's pretty interesting. Other racers that go through the old ghost towns and mining towns that are completely abandoned along the route have also claimed that they could hear and see people in these towns when nobody should have been in there. They could smell fires burning, hear doors slamming, people moving about, conversations happening, and it's like they, they saw these out-of-place, out-of-time gold miners and hunters and trappers milling about with their gold and their belongings, and they would just give the racers dirty looks like they don't belong there. Now, perhaps a group of people could have gone up there looking for treasure, but it's still pretty creepy, and if they weren't ghosts, maybe it could be something like a time slip. With all the other high strangeness in this state, I don't think that would be out of the question. And speaking of ghost towns, this is the last story. One of the more well-known ghost towns, actually takes place well within the triangle. So there is this town called Kennecott, which found its beginnings in the year 1900. There were mines that were founded, and within a few years, the company mining town of Kennecott was officially founded, and this was located in the Valdez and Chitina mining districts. This was in the heart of what is now the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve. And to bring commerce and materials to build the town, the Copper River and Northwestern Railway was constructed. And during the building of this rail line, which took several years, many workers lost their lives as the track needed to span glaciers, chasms, as well as having to drill through mountains to make tunnels. It was a pretty big operation to get this thing put together and get the infrastructure in so that they could haul materials out that they were actually mining. So what they were mining was copper, and it became this flourishing copper mining community full of workers and people looking to earn a living and make their fortunes and over its 27 years in operation, the mining company made over a hundred million dollars however, This operation came to an abrupt end in 1938. After most of the copper was extracted from the mines, all operations stopped and the town was almost abandoned overnight. People left their belongings and just got out of Dodge. Only a few people remained, but by the 1950s, the entire place was a ghost town. However, visitors who still traveled along the stretch of road bordering the old railway near Chitina reported seeing tombstones that would appear along the way, and then when they'd look back, they'd be gone. So there's this whole story of these like disappearing tombstones, which is really weird. And people would also report hearing the sounds of miners and people from back in the day when there was nobody around. So there's some kind of spectral haunting, something going on. Perhaps maybe it's a residual haunting where it's kind of like stone tape theory and the minerals and crystals in the area are replaying scenes from the past. Who knows? But years later, a housing project was started and it went underway near the former tracks from the railroad and things took a turn for the truly spooky workers who were on this project, started reporting the disembodied voices of minors and children long since gone from the area. Some saw apparitions, and as the activity seemed to intensify, some even experienced poltergeist-like type activity where tools would fly off of workers' belts from some unseen force and just disappear completely and shortly after this activity started to get intense, work on the housing project stopped. Now, that's pretty interesting, right? They're like, oh, this place is haunted. We're out of here. <laughs> now, you can still visit Kendicott today. The mill building complex is there. But if you go, definitely watch out for anything out of the ordinary. And that, my friends, is the story of the Alaska Triangle. At least part of it. This one took a while to put together, so thanks for your patience waiting the extra week. I wanted this episode to be cool and to also flow because there was so much ground to cover, and it seems like the place for all things weird. There's just something about it, and there's a lot of really interesting, fascinating tales and stories. I think that there's definitely something weird going on up in alaska anyway i hope you enjoyed the show thanks for hanging out with me today and giving it a listen and before i wrap up here as always i want to give a big thank you to everyone out there who downloads and shares the strangeology podcast especially all of the members of my patreon your support is invaluable and this show wouldn't be possible without listeners like you The show recently passed 150,000 downloads, so I don't know exactly when because things are so busy in my life right now, but thank you for helping me break through that milestone. It's just wild. To any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast or would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com. And if you haven't yet, make sure to give me a follow over on all of my social media accounts. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. If you're looking for more content from me, definitely check out my YouTube channel, as well as my Instagram and TikTok channels where I post some short form content. Definitely check that out. And also pay attention on Instagram as that's where I host merch giveaways And it's been a minute since I've done one and having recently hit the 150,000 download mark, I'm probably going to put one together real soon. And again, if you're looking for other ways to support the Strangeology podcast, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash strangeology, or you can head over to my Etsy shop at strangeology.etsy.com where I've got all of my cryptid, alien, and Fordian gear available. You can find my designs on t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, stickers, prints, mugs, tumblers, enamel pins, and more. All right, I think that's all from me for now. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back for Strangeology Beyond, I'm going to dive deeper down the rabbit hole of high strangeness in Alaska. Patrons, stick with me, and for everyone else, until the next time, Take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking around for Strangeology Beyond. There is a lot to the story of the Alaska Triangle.